We are looking at this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul called 1 Thessalonians in a series we are calling Fully Alive, exploring how the gospel, how the good news about Jesus brings about personal, relational, and even cultural renewal. And today we come to this incredibly vital topic, which is the topic of prayer. For we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 to 13, Paul's prayer for this church. I'll read the text, we'll pray together, and we will invite the Spirit of God to teach us, encourage us about prayer. So let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. Paul the Apostle writes, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is God's word. Let's pray together once more. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room, those who are outside, those who are watching online, they matter to you. Thank you that you are aware of all that is in our hearts, our hopes and our, our fears, our struggles as well as the, the victories. And we pray this morning that you would speak into the cares and concerns of our hearts, that you would encourage us and equip us in this thing called prayer. Show us the, the beauty and the privilege it is to pray. Teach us why it is that we can pray, regardless of where we're coming from and where we're at. All because of what you've done for us in Jesus. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not yet know you, has not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we pray that they would do so today and experience forgiveness and newness of life. God, would you transform us all? We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Alexander the Great, the famed king of the huge empire in the fourth century, one day had a general in his army come to him and say, Alexander the Great, I've been a loyal general and soldier in your army for many years, but I am in great need. My daughter is getting married, and I am asking if you would be willing to pay for the wedding. Alexander replied, fine, I will pay for the wedding. Go to my treasurer and tell him what you need. Whatever it is, it will be yours. So the general went to Alexander's treasurer and asked for what he needed. However, 
The treasurer, upon hearing the vast sum, the huge amount that the general had asked for, the treasurer was shocked. And assuming a mistake had been made, the treasurer went to Alexander and said, did you really, it's like your financial advisor, did you really tell the general that you would give him any amount he asked for? Why, yes, said Alexander. Well, do you know how much he is asking for, said the treasurer. No, Alexander replied. And so the treasurer went on to tell Alexander the Great the ridiculously large amount of money the general had requested. And the treasurer thought that Alexander would be outraged. But instead, Alexander smiled and said, pay it all. The treasurer said, what? The king replied by saying, don't you see what an honor the general is doing me? By asking for such an enormous amount of money, he shows that he believes that I am both rich and generous. The general's request for his daughter's wedding said much about his need, but it also said a lot about the king's character. And the same is true, friends, about this thing called prayer. When you pray, it reveals what we believe about ourselves, our own need. But when we pray, it also reveals what we believe about God. And like the king extended the invitation to his general to make a request, God invites us to pray. What will you ask for? What have you not been asking for? What would keep you from prayer even this morning? Your answer to those questions reveals not only what you believe about God, but also what you believe about yourself. And so the Bible tells us we should pray. But how should we pray? Well, in verses 10 to 13, we have here Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church. And like a servant coming to a king, his request reveals how he views himself, how he views this church community, and how he views God. The result is it's a model for us. There are three very simple but very important lessons for all of us to take to heart when we think about prayer. And the first lesson is this. Let your need drive you to prayer. As we've learned throughout the time we've spent studying this letter, that it is a very relational letter. Paul the Apostle, who originally started and planted this church sometime before, was separated from them due to opposition and persecution that he faced in that city because he was preaching the message about Jesus. As a result, he separated from them, and he longed to be reunited with them. He was concerned for them, and that's why he writes this letter to them. So what does he do when he cannot be with them? What does he do when he's concerned for their well-being? He prays. And in this letter, Paul turns a corner to this theme of prayer by saying in verse 10 and 11, night and day we pray most earnestly 
that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Now you'd be forgiven for thinking that Paul might be a little bit dramatic in the way that he talks about praying. Night and day, does Paul really pray all day and all night? Does Paul really pray 24 hours a day and seven days a week? Is Paul simply using dramatic language for added impact when he says night and day we pray? Was he never working or eating or sleeping? Well, what he means by this in the original language is that during his regular times of prayer, during the day and at night, when he would pray, he remembered these people in prayer. His passion, his longing, his need is actually revealed in his persistency. And there's a huge lesson for us when it comes to persistency in prayer for us to learn. This is something that we find taught all throughout Scripture, especially in the lessons on prayer that we find from Jesus himself. Oftentimes when Jesus in the Gospels teaches on prayer, he teaches this principle of persistency. He says, when you pray, don't give up. When you pray, keep on praying. Which is very helpful for us because it denotes that there will be times when you feel like giving up. When you feel like stopping in prayer. When you feel that maybe prayer simply doesn't matter. There are so many examples in scripture including the teachings of Jesus himself on the importance of persisting in prayer. But how did Paul get there? How is it that Paul became so persistent and even passionate in his prayers. Well, he let his needs drive him to prayer. Think about it. Paul has already told us, if you've been with us for a while, by way of reminder, in this letter, Paul has already told us about his great care and concern for this young church. They were very fragile. They'd only been a church for a short period of time. He's told us that he longed to be with them. He even says there in verse 10, he says, I want to come so that I can supply what is lacking in your faith. There is a great need for leadership in that church. We learn from this letter that Paul was blocked from coming to them, that there was even spiritual opposition against him. He recognizes that they are in need. He recognizes himself to be in need. So how does Paul pray with passion and persistency? It's actually very simple. He let his needs drive him to prayer. The challenges and trials in Paul's life did not kill his prayers, they actually fueled his prayers. So what does he do when he's faced with opposition and I, I can't get to you and you guys are in need and I'm in need? He prays his needs. Which is important for us because we need to ask the question, where do your needs drive you? When things get tough, when things get difficult, where is it that you are driven? What is your go-to? For some of us, or if you're like me, your needs tend to drive you towards self-reliance. 
I'll be honest, when things get tough for me, the first place I go to quite often is not God, it is to myself. Oftentimes, my needs drive me to self-reliance. Oh, how many times have I been in, for example, financial need, right? We've all been there. We've all been there, especially if you have children. Financial needs come often. And so many times throughout our, our lives, you know, the financial need comes and, you know, for example, braces. Are you kidding me? They cost like a million dollars. Like, what the heck? These need come. Braces, what? Everyone needs braces. This is insane. And what's my first go-to when there's financial hardship? I literally look around the room and think what I can sell. I'm like, that's going on eBay. That's going on OfferUp. The kids' old toys, they don't need them for, for like two months old. You know, I can sell them on Facebook Marketplace. Like, I instantly go to what I can do. Other trials and difficulties in my life, my instinct is often to look to myself. What can I do here? How can I fight my way out of this? How can I, you know, scramble? How can I pull things together? How can I just muster my own strength and, you know, pull myself up by my own bootstraps? How can I respond to this need? At the heart of it, it's self-reliance. See, oftentimes when it comes to prayer, many of us have said, well, I try to pray, but I'm so busy. And we often think that busyness is the enemy of prayer, but I don't think it is. I don't think busyness is the enemy of prayer. Self-reliance is the enemy of prayer, right? It's not just that we're busy. I'm reminded of Martin Luther who once said, I am so busy tomorrow that I must spend the first three hours in prayer. <laughs> Like he realized, I've got so much to, to do that I can't possibly think about doing it without prayer. It's not busyness, it is self-reliance that often keeps me from prayer. Our needs often drive us to self-reliance, but for Paul, his needs drive him to God-dependence. It's one of the shifts that I believe God wants to bring about in us is this move from self-reliance to God-dependence. Let your needs drive you to prayer. See, many of us, we think, like, I could pray better if I was only more disciplined. Now, discipline can and, and will be a very valuable characteristic in our lives. We're told often in Scripture to be disciplined, but let me tell you this. You don't have to be disciplined to pray well. You have to be desperate. I've, I've learned more about prayer through times of desperation, especially as I go to God's word and realize that apart from him, I can do nothing. Do you guys remember that statement of Jesus? He says that to his disciples. He brings his followers around him and says, hey guys, as you're getting ready to go out on my mission, I just want to tell you this little thought. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Like, oh, thanks for that vote of confidence, Jesus. Like... <laughs> But sadly, somewhere along the line, we think we, can, we need God for some things and we can rely on ourselves for other things. And so we're not that desperate. But if we realize that truly, apart from God, we can do nothing, we would realize how desperate we are and it would drive us to prayer. Personally, I have not only learned the power of prayer through discipline, but actually through desperation. How many times have I been in a meeting where there's a crisis or, or maybe there's a very difficult situation that I'm brought into and as the people are retelling me the story, they're telling me about the crisis, they're telling me about the need and I'm sitting there thinking, 
do they think I know what to do? <laughs> like, does my, does my face, you know, give off the vibe of like, I'm terrified, you know? But you know what it does? It makes me pray. If you ever have a meeting with me and I look weird, it's because I'm praying. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you know, you're like, Pastor Tim, your eyes twitching. I'm like, oh, it's just prayer. Because what's really going on in my heart is I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't know what to do. Holy Spirit of God, like, I need you to lead me in prayer. It's often through desperation or my own family's needs, my, my own personal needs, the needs of my friends. It's in those moments where when I realize what is truly my state, I'm desperate. When I realize that, it drives me to prayer. The more we become aware of this, the more we realize how desperate we are without Christ, we will be driven towards Christ in prayer. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. It's that desperation, the awareness of our spiritual desperation apart from God that fuels our prayers. And I love that Paul models that. He says, hey, I've got these needs, but I'm immediately going to take these needs to prayer. You know what that means, friends? The areas of temptation for you actually become invitations to pray. So think of the parts of your day, the places that you have to go in your week where Perhaps you feel particularly tempted, like, man, oh, it's just a struggle when I work with these people, or, or I'm in this environment, or I have to meet with this family member, those moments where you're tempted to give in to, to sin or whatever it might be. Those moments of temptation actually become an invitation for you to pray. Because when God sends you out into the world, he doesn't send you away from himself, he sends you with himself. Those moments of difficulty those moments of hardship, they are your invitation to cry out to God, even in the moment, saying, God, help me. So often my prayers throughout the day are as short as that. Two words, God, help. God, help. I need your help right now. There's going to be times of regular patterns of prayer, as Paul modeled for us, and ultimately Jesus modeled for us. More often than not, at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, of course, there are regularly patterned and scheduled times of prayer. I would encourage you, if that rhythm is not in your life, don't just look for ways, find ways, find times, make times for those regular patterns of prayer. But also throughout the day, don't be ashamed to throw up a, God help me. <laughs> right now, I'm in this meeting like, Holy Spirit, come. <laughs> I need your help. Let your needs drive you to prayer. Notice with Paul, bad news does not keep him from prayer, and good news does not make him complacent in prayer. See, whenever there's bad news, Paul, he's, he's being kept away from the Thessalonians. He can't make his way to them. But what does he do? He takes his needs to prayer. But when Timothy, his co-worker, went to the Thessalonian church and spent time with them because Paul was worried about them. When Timothy returns to Paul with a good report and says, Paul, I know you were worried about the Thessalonian church, but I have a good report for you. They're doing great. Paul doesn't say, oh, it's good news. Well, I don't need to pray anymore. How many times have we prayed desperately for something only for God to answer, maybe even miraculously, and we don't thank him? 
I am so guilty of this. My wife and I so many times have cried out, Oh Lord, our Lord, ruler of heaven and earth, please provide for the braces or, you know, whatever it might be. And then God answers the prayer and we're like, cool. That's sorted. Next. It's like, wait a minute. Should we not express our praise and thanks and adoration in prayer to the God who's answered our prayers? Of course, many of us may remember the story in the gospel of the 10 lepers that Jesus healed. He healed all 10 of these lepers and they went away and only one came back to thank him. And Jesus marveled, said, I healed 10 and only one came back? Bad news does not keep Paul from prayer and good news does not make him complacent in prayer. He continues to pray. There's work to be done. And so he prays very practically, I pray that a way would be opened for me to come to you. God wants to reshape our instincts. He wants to reshape my instincts, that we would move from self-reliance to God dependence. This is how we can begin to develop habits and rhythms of prayer. Let your needs drive you to prayer. But when we pray, what should direct our prayers? The first lesson is simply let your needs drive you to prayer. But secondly, this is very important. Let God's nature direct you in prayer. So whatever practical need it is, however big, however small, whatever obstacle you're facing, whatever blessing you've received, let your needs drive you to prayer. Don't let anything keep you from running to God in prayer. But when you pray... What should prioritize your prayers? God is not the proverbial genie in the bottle. We are not the master and he our servant that we just tell him what to do. No, we let God's nature, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he said he will do, we let the truth about him direct the way we pray. So here, Paul prays with passion. He lets his needs drive him to God. But as he continues to pray, he doesn't just ask for anything. Indeed, we learn from Paul that what he prays for is shaped by who he is praying to. God the Father and the Lord Jesus, he says in verse 12, or verse 11. And then in verse 12, he says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. The fact that Paul turns so naturally with these needs to prayer shows that he has a wonderful understanding of who he was praying to. Now, this is massive. It's true for all communication, right? The, who you're speaking to shapes how you speak to them. And I learned this in a quite embarrassing way. On many occasions, but one in particular stands out. When my family and I were still in London, we, through our time living there, we had to move house. We had to move from one flat to another flat. And in order to, to secure this, this flat, to get a lease on this flat, because it's so competitive in, in London, when you email a landlord, you have to put your best foot forward, right? You just draft up this like incredible email. I'm like, to whom it may concern most dearly. 
dearest landlord, I plead with you and include a JPEG of my adorable children just to pull on your, the sympathy strings of your heart. You know, I'm like putting my best foot forward. You know, I'm just trying to show how responsible, you know, we are. And, you know, I'm trying to like get in the door, you know, because I'm speaking to the landlord. Now, we found out a few weeks later, thankfully, praise God, we got the flat. We're so overjoyed. And I received an email from the agency that we were going to, I was going to go there and I was going to meet with, you know, an assistant and they were going to let me into the flat to do an inspection before we moved in. And so I arrive as scheduled and there was a guy there, you know, wearing these like Nike, you know, tracksuit and trainers or sneakers, whatever they're called in the United States. And, you know, he's like, hey, you know, he's letting me in. I'm like, cool. And I'm looking around the place. And then I start noticing that some of the things that the landlord had promised me had not yet been taken out. And some of the things that were supposed to be in the flat were not yet placed there. And so I start getting into kind of business mode with this guy. I'm like, okay, so this mirror, this is left here. I told the landlord this mirror needs to be removed. Like, we can't have that in here. We don't have space for it. Oh, these, these, these holes in the wall, like, they, they need to be covered up. Like, you need to tell the, the landlord to do this. Like, oh, this thing in the kitchen's missing. You know, I told the landlord, and the guy stops me after 10 minutes. He's saying, Tim, I am the landlord. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Ever so sorry is your humble servant, your tenant. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. Like I literally, it doesn't happen often, but I, I turned bright red because I realized that I had been talking to who was about to be my landlord who literally held the keys as if he was my servant. And let's be honest, friends, in many ways and in many times, this is how we speak to God. We talk to him as if he is our servant, not that we are his. We're like, God, I'm going to tell you what to do today. I've even printed it out in a nice tidy little PDF that I've sent to heaven for you. So that there's no excuse that you do not come through on what I have requested in the time frame that I desire. How often do we have this attitude? But not so with Paul. What he prayed for was shaped by who he was praying to. This is the God of the universe. This is our creator. This is our redeemer. He was so aware of who he was praying to that shaped what was prioritized in his prayers. Notice twice in this short prayer, in verse 11, and we'll get there in a moment, in verse 13, Paul draws together these twin titles here. God the Father and Jesus the Lord. This was his regular way of addressing in prayer. And notice, this is beautiful, Paul is asking God our Father and Jesus our Lord to do the same thing. Why? Because as the Bible teaches and as all Christians believe, we believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you're looking for a verse that highlights and showcases that Jesus is God, Look at Paul's prayers. God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm asking you to do the same thing. He's praying to the triune God. But this is more than just about getting the titles correct. It reveals the character and nature of the one you're bringing your needs to. And it shapes what you pray for. God our Father and Jesus our 
Savior. So I want you to notice how Paul is aware of who who he's praying to and then what he prays for. When he says, God, our Father, and Jesus, our Lord, this also reminds him and us that he is adopted and he is forgiven. The same God who has adopted him is the same God who has made a way for him to be forgiven and accepted through his son, Jesus Christ. This is all possible for us through Jesus. He's grounding his prayer and his understanding of who God is and what he has done for Paul and for the world. Prayer that is grounded in the character of God as revealed in the word of God learns to depend on him as a good father, generous and sovereign, and he is accessible through Jesus because of Christ's saving work. When we say, in Jesus' name, amen, it's not just like a little magic word like, well, God, now you have to do it. Right? A lot of us view that like, God, give me the benzo. In Jesus' name, amen, I'm getting it. And in heaven, God's like, oh, I don't want to give that to you, but oh, he said Jesus' name, amen, now I got to give it to him, whatever it is that he asked for. When we pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is, God, we have no right to come to you as the creator, the sovereign over the universe, but you've made a way through Jesus And it's in his name that we approach you. Knowing the character and nature of the God we pray to shapes what we pray for. And so of all the things that Paul could pray for, what takes priority in his request? Well, it's what God prioritizes. In verse 12, what does he pray? That love would increase that love would increase. I don't know if praying that love would increase is typically on the top of my priority list in prayer. Especially when I think about the last two years of all the chaos and insanity going on in the world and all around us. There are many things that I've prayed for. I don't know if love always makes it to the top of the list. I'm gonna be honest. There's other times where we might think other needs are much more pressing. But for Paul, love is a priority. Why? Because love is the virtue from which all others flow. For love reflects the very character of God revealed to us over and over again and ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are to follow Jesus, it requires love to be shown towards one another and Everyone else. It means you don't get to pick and choose. Don't you love that he says that there? Love for one another. You're like, cool. My Facebook friends. He says love for one another and for everyone else. So whoever you're tempted not to want to love, Paul says, and those people too. (laughs) Amen. In other words, this is a love that is not based on whether or not people deserve it. Because let's be honest. When it comes to this command to love, we often look at other people and we go, hmm, I don't know if you're worthy of my love. I know scripture calls me to love, but I look at you and how annoyed I am with you and I don't think you're worthy. I don't want to love you, so I'm not. We just give ourselves a free pass and we love our friends. But that's not the kind of love that Paul's talking about here. It's not the kind of love that he's describing here. In fact, Paul's life is an example. 
He says, just as our love increases for you. What kind of love was that? We learn it from this letter. In the first two chapters, we learn that Paul burdened himself rather than burdening other people. It's a sign of love. We learn that Paul showed affection and care towards them like a, a family member would. It's a sign of love. We learn that Paul was willing to make sacrifices for them and for others. That is a sign of love. What was the priority in his life and in his prayer? Love. Why was this a priority in his life and in his prayer? Because sacrificial love is at the very heart of the gospel of God. Listen, it is because of the sacrificial love of God that we can even pray to him at all. Think about the beauty of the gospel as it pertains to prayer. Jesus Christ, being the eternal Son of God, is the only one who can call his Father, Father, by right. Because of sin, none of us have a right. We've sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. We have no right to claim such an intimate term. But Jesus is the only one who by right can say Father. In fact, if you read through the Gospels and you look at the original language, he always, when Jesus prayed, he always addressed his Father with the intimate title of Abba which is the Aramaic term for father, that it expresses nearness. It expresses affection. So much so that when Jesus prayed to Abba, no doubt some of the religious leaders and the super pharisaical people around him were like, whoa. It's pretty bold. And yet this is the term that Jesus always used. He used it all the time in his prayers, except once. There's only one time that Jesus prayed, and he did not use this affectionate term, Abba. And it was when Jesus was dying on the cross. When he was suffering for our sins, he did not cry out, Abba. But instead, he quoted Psalm 22 because he was experiencing it. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? And why did he say it in that way? Because 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he took the penalty that our sin deserves. He took the full weight of the wrath of God against our sin in our place. And in that hour, when darkness was covering the land, he was cut off from the intimacy that was rightfully his because he took the penalty for sin that was rightfully ours so that after he died and after he rose again for us, he did all of this so that after rising again, you and I could be made right with God. Or to put it this way, he took the payment for our failure so that we could have the privilege of calling him Father. That's what happens on the cross. That's why we can pray. That's how we can come to God so boldly. Some of you right now are like, oh, I haven't spoken to God in a while. I haven't been to church in a while. Or it's been a terrible week. I've been coming to this church for years, but it's been such a bad week. You know, the way I've been handling myself. I don't think I can pray today, friend. Yes, you can because of Jesus. Like Paul says in another letter in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, he says, for you did not receive, when you received Jesus, 
You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What? We get to call him Father? We get to come into his presence? When we pray our Father and Lord Jesus, we are reminded of our adoption and our salvation. God has made us full members of his house. That means, friends, that our acceptance before God is not based on how you feel about it. Our acceptance before God and the access that we have to him in prayer is not based on what we've done this week or have failed to do this week. It's all based on what Christ has done about it. It's based on his nature and his work, and that is why we pray in his name. Prayer is not a right we earn. It is a privilege we enjoy. It's not a right we earn. It's a privilege that we are offered through Christ. And every time you pray, it's a reminder that though we used to be slaves under sin, Jesus did something about it. Jesus delivered us and saved us, and now we are his children and we can pray. Martin Luther captures this when he says, although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from thy presence, yet I am thy child and thou art my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the beloved. That's gospel truth. I am the beloved or I am beloved because of the beloved, because of Jesus. And so our requests are shaped by who he is. And so because he's shown us love, our primary concern when we pray is that we would increase in love. It's our priority because God is love. And the result is not fear. The result is not condemnation. We don't need to fear the future. But we can be prepared for it. And that's the last thing before we respond. We want to let our needs drive us to prayer. We want to let God's nature direct us in prayer. But thirdly, you need to keep an eternal perspective. When you pray, keep an eternal perspective. When Paul prays for love to increase, he prays that all this growth would find its final goal. And he says it in verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. See, our priorities in prayer make sense, not only in light of God's character, but also in light of our future, in light of eternity. When you think and pray with an eternal perspective, things that would otherwise seem unimportant in the moment, they become absolutely essential. I'll never forget when we first moved to England. I'm a native Californian, so naturally I love the sun. We moved to England. It was early, kind of springtime, late winter. And it's a finally just this beautiful, sunshiny day. And I go out and I'm like, I don't need my coat. I don't need my umbrella. It's a sunny day. And I was basking in the moment until I got on the bus. And I looked around and I thought, these people look strange. They're all wearing raincoats. 
they all have umbrellas. What fools, fools. Don't you know how to enjoy the sun? I, as a native Californian, I will teach you the ways. I will teach you how to enjoy the sun. By the time I got off the bus, the strange phenomena happened where water fell from the sky. <laughs> and who was unprepared? It wasn't the Londoner, it was I. What looked foolish in a moment because of the, the sun shining in that brief second made all the sense in light of the future. And friends, the same is true for you. What you pray for and how you live might look foolish to other people. Why are you praying for love? Why are you praying that love would increase? You should pray that our taxes decrease. That's what you should be praying for. It's California. But all of a sudden, when you look at things in light of an eternal perspective, wait a minute, wait a minute. We are rushing towards this day of final accountability towards God, and we're going to help other people in the same direction. So that shapes what I'm praying for. I'm living in light of the future. And what may look like something that doesn't really matter in the moment, all of a sudden becomes a priority with this eternal perspective. And friends, when Paul prays, he prays with this eternal perspective. He wasn't just praying for what he wanted for them right now. He was praying what he wanted for them ultimately. I have your future in mind. I've got this eternal perspective in mind. What is a journey without the destination? What is a race without the finish line? This is what's shaping Paul's prayers. And it's an important lesson for us, friends, because we live in a culture that is becoming overwhelmingly oriented towards immediate gratification. And result, but where are we headed? Paul is aware that Jesus Christ is coming again and he's coming soon. When we pray, amen, it is our hope, it is the Christian hope. And there's more on that in the next chapter. But when we pray, we must do so knowing that we are all inevitably moving into the future. And from that perspective, there's no prayer more important than this in verse 13 again, that God might strengthen our hearts so that you would be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father on that last day. The heart is not just the center of emotion in the Bible. The heart is the very center of our personality and our motives and our affections. So to have your heart strengthened is actually to have your commitment to Jesus become more resolved. He is connecting the present to the future. He's reminding us to keep eternity in view. One of Paul's major concerns in this letter is that we need to live in light of the future, specifically what will happen when Jesus Christ returns. In order to be blameless then, Paul prays that we may be strengthened now. And so he prays for love. If we don't have that final horizon in view, we won't stay on course in the race. And so he prays at the end of this chapter. Remember that day when we will stand in the presence of God. He has that end in mind. He wanted them to know the beauty of that day, the final security of God's presence. Are these desires my desires? Are these desires your desires? Friends, make these prayers your prayers. Make these prayers what you pray for. We're not 
simply to pray vague or, or small prayers, but specific, even extravagant prayers in accordance with the Word of God. So this morning, I invite you that when you pray, come as a needy child this morning. Come as a needy child. Just like my kids come to me, I don't say, hey, hey, go stop crying and then come to your dad if they're hurt. No, come. You don't pretend that you don't have needs. You come to God with your needs. So if you don't know where to start, begin with what's real. It might be, God, I'm a mess. Bring that mess to him. Or maybe you're like, God, I don't feel like I need you right now. And that's a problem. Things are going pretty good. But I even want to bring that complacency to you right now in prayer. Let your needs drive you to him. Come to your father as a needy child. And when you pray, not only come needy, but come boldly. Knowing that through Christ you are forgiven and accepted. And if you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, do that today. So that you can come boldly. Just like my children would not hesitate to come to me. When you pray, pray like a needy child. Pray boldly and pray gladly. Knowing that your future is both glorious and secure in Jesus Christ. Alexander said to the treasurer, don't you see? And the general asking for the sum, he honors me by showing that he believes that I am both rich and generous. We honor God by asking for what he calls us to ask for and to come to him without hesitation. So come needy, come boldly, come gladly. In doing so, we honor God for who he is. I invite you to do that this morning. Let's bow our heads now, even in prayer, as we prepare to respond in this moment. And before I lead us, if you do not know Jesus, make the decision right now in your heart to trust him as your Lord and as your Savior today. Tomorrow is not promised to you. Trust him now and know the forgiveness that Jesus Christ secured for you on that day when he died in your place and rose again. Trust him. If you've been self-reliant, today is your invitation to be God-dependent. And it can start with just simple, needy prayers. If you've been discouraged, ask God for a strengthened heart. And let us all pray that we would increase in our love as we receive his love. That's what this time is all about. So, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would overwhelm us with the great love that you have shown for us. Overwhelm us, God, with all that you've done for us in Jesus. And I pray that that would cause us to run to you to have our perspective be shaped by you. I pray that right now we wouldn't play church, that we wouldn't just think about all the practical responsibilities we have later today, but right now for these moments that we have together as we sing and as we respond, I pray that we'd run to you, God. Cry out to you because you've made a way in Jesus. Spirit of God, would you move right now? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Church, I'm aware of the ability that I have to be so familiar with the rhythms 
of the church gathering that I forget the importance of these moments. And right now, we have time. There's songs we're going to sing. And it's a time for us not just to move on to the, to the next thing or start checking our phones or whatever. It's a time to respond to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And so I invite you. There's going to be men and women up here to my left, to my right. They're wearing the prayer lanyards. They'll be here to pray with you and for you. And I invite you. There's no need too great. There's no need too small. You can come messy. You can come needy. You can come complacent. Just come and pray and ask and invite God to move. Come down to the carpets here. We have carpets here so that we can come and we can kneel and we can lift our hands and express biblical postures of worship. Just saying, hey, we're needy. We need you, God. And communion is here on the stage. And I invite you, if you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I call you to come and to take communion today. That is, you eat the bread and you drink the cup, which Jesus says represents his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. As we confess our sin, as we confess our self-reliance, we also receive his forgiveness. You are made clean. Celebrate that today as you take communion. And as we sing, let's just sing to our loving Heavenly Father. May these songs become prayers for us from our hearts. May we not hold back. Become as, this is a room full of needy children. You think you got needy children upstairs? We are. We are the needy children. And our loving Heavenly Father, whose arms are wide open, says, come in. Come to me. Come to me. Let's not hold back. Let's do that now.